If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the GlobalX Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we're broadcasting another of our lectures from our 2019 History Weekend event in Winchester. In this episode, you'll be hearing from the best-selling military historian, author and journalist Max Hastings about the 1943 Dambusters Raid, which is the subject of his latest book, Chastise. Max's talk was preceded by a short clip from the iconic 1955 Dambusters film. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. That clip tells the fantastic story more eloquently than can any words of mine, but let me try. There were dams, a dog with an embarrassing name, a march that everybody over 40 can hum. These memories of Operation Chastise, the bouncing bomb attack which burst Germany's Mona and Ada reservoirs on the night of the 16th, 17th May, 1943, cling to the consciousness of millions of people who may not know much else about the Second World War. Guy Gibson's biographer has written, the story of 617 Squadron has joined that group of tales like King Arthur or Robin Hood, which defy all efforts at scholarly revision. Much that we think we know is wrong. Among many reasons, the 1955 Dambusters 
became most popular British war movie of all time, is that it portrayed a successful air attack that seemed victimless, save for 53 dead among the wonderfully courageous young men who carried it out. It bore none of the moral baggage that's become associated with the offensive against Germany's cities. In reality, however, up to 1,400 people perished in the biblical flood, the Mona catastrophe, as Germans call it, unleashed by the raiders, more civilian deaths that have been inflicted by any previous RAF attack. It's fascinating that Guy Gibson afterwards reflected uneasily about this, as his senior officers never did. He wrote, the fact that people might drown hadn't occurred to us. No one likes mass slaughter, and we did not like being the authors of it. Four decades ago, when researching my book, Bomber Command, I interviewed towering figures of that era, including Air Chief Marshal Sir Arthur Harris, Barnes Wallace, Dan Buster, Mickey Martin. The RAF's Battle of Britain flight flew me in its Lancaster bomber, an unforgettable experience. I sat in the rear turret with my long back sticking out through the doors while our accompanying Spitfire and Hurricane made passes to give me a gunner's eye view of an attacking fighter. These memories clung to my consciousness as I wrote Chastise. I acknowledge a contradiction in my view of this saga, which you may share. Since the 1940s, most British writers have focused upon the airman's triumph and said little about the human tragedy. My book seeks to shift that balance. Yet I don't believe that a 21st century compassion for the victims need diminish our admiration either for the inventor of the bouncing bomb or the flyers who delivered it. Our greatest living historian, Sir Michael Howard, a close friend who's today 96, himself fought with distinction in those days. He said to me recently, nobody can wage a struggle for national survival and keep completely clean hands. We make war as we can rather than as we should. The chastised story is dominated by three personalities. Barnes Wallace, the engineer who created the bombs, Guy Gibson, who led the attack, and warlord Bomber Harris, who did his best to see that it didn't happen and then stole the credit for it. Each was extraordinary in very different ways. First, Wallace, the only boffin to achieve membership of Britain's historic pantheon of World War II, behind Winston Churchill, but alongside ultra-codebreaker Alan Turing. Movie legend depicts a genius fighting a lone battle against stodgy bureaucrats. The truth was the other way round. In the midst of an existential struggle in which Britain was battling Hitler with meager resources, some of the guiding lights of the war effort grasped the potential of Wallace's fantastic idea and backed it. Moreover, most RAF commanders proved astonishingly, indeed naively, willing to share the inventor's extravagant hopes about the economic havoc it might wreck upon the Nazi war machine. 
Wallace, born in 1887, was a scholarship boy who became an engineering apprentice and then graduated to working on airships. No stranger to pawnbroker shops, he once sold his bicycle to pay for his parents to have a holiday. In 1922, he lost his job and was reduced to teaching maths at a school in Switzerland. It was from there, as a bachelor, already 35, that he started writing to his 17-year-old cousin, Molly, at first explaining scientific formulae. Their correspondence developed into a romance. Molly soon pledged her heart to Barnes, but her father was wary of this much older cradle snatcher. Only in 1925 were they finally married to live happily ever after. Barnes became assistant chief designer on the giant airship R100. While laboring at this day job, he found time for bell ringing in his village church. He was a devout Christian who once exuberantly expressed to a friend his admiration for God. My dear boy, do you realize that the Almighty has arranged the system whereby millions of electric circuits pass up and down a single cord, no bigger than my little finger, and each one most beautifully insulated. The spinal cord is an absolute marvel of electronics. He was a stern parent. His daughter Mary said, we were used to my father isolating himself in his study, always working, often abstracted. He was frequently absent from the daily round of chat, laughter and games which big families enjoy. Wallace relaxed discipline only on family camping holidays. Mary described how, on a Dorset beach, he taught his children to skim stones across the sea. Mine went plop, plop and sank. His would slide smoothly with six or seven hops and quietly submerge. Barnes and Molly, their daughter, added, succeeded in protecting us from fear, anxiety, hunger, or distress. For any parents, that's quite an achievement. Yet Wallace, like many brilliant people, existed in a default state of exasperation about the failure of others to see everything as he did. To understand his wartime experience, it's important to recognize that he was very far from right about everything. He pursued doomed ideas with the same manic commitment he brought to those that prospered which explains why it wasn't unreasonable for those in authority to be wary of his flights of imagination. Yet Wallace conceived one weapon that secured his legend. The RAF's chiefs had long before identified as objectives the reservoirs of Northwest Germany, supplying water to Ruhr industry. They aspired to breach especially the mighty Mona Dam, but they couldn't think how. Wallace entered the story in 1940 by promised proposing a huge earthquake bomb, which he worked on in his spare time from designing aircraft for Vickers. Only in April 1942, Holy Week as it happened, did he embrace a quite different concept, which he explored on the terrace of his Surrey home with the help of marbles and his children. 
he came to believe that a low-flying aircraft might bounce a bomb, really a depth charge, over protective nets. As the project bounced around the air ministry, it collided with the formidable person of Bomber Command's chieftain, Sir Arthur Harris. Harris, frankly, a monster, though monsters have their uses in a war of national survival, was obsessed with using every aircraft he had to destroy by far the cities of Germany. He wrote about Wallace's idea. This is tripe of the wildest description. The weapon is balmy. Get some of these lunatics controlled and, if possible, locked up. The bomb finally went ahead only because of the insistence of Harris's boss, Sir Charles Portal, head of the RAF, who shared Wallace's conviction that depriving raw industry of water could make a devastating impact. In February 1943, although test devices were still breaking up, Portal showed faith enough to order an operation to be launched using them, which must take place before June while German reservoirs were full. He overrode Harris to order Bomber Command to commit a squadron. The man appointed to lead it was Guy Gibson, veteran of an astounding 172 sorties. This 24-year-old, far more aged in cruel experience than his birth certificate suggested, was told to recruit crews for an unspecified special operation on which they would have to fly very, very low. Gibson was a lonely figure, indeed a tragic one. After an early childhood in India, his mother abandoned her much older husband and traveled to England where she became an alcoholic. While Guy was a 15-year-old schoolboy, she served a prison sentence for driving offenses. When drunk on Christmas Eve 1939, her dress became caught in electric fire, precipitating a horribly protracted death from burns. It's not surprising that her son carried demons. He became known as one of the RAF's most courageous leaders, yet he wasn't much liked by comrades because of a bossiness to underlings, a harsh intolerance of weakness. Since starting writing this book, I've been repeatedly asked one nervous question. What are you going to say about the dog? The British people are obsessed with Guy Gibson's Labrador, which he loved more than any other living creature. A historian's answer might be, its name is no more nor less embarrassing than the fact that our ancestors hanged sheep stealers and jailed homosexuals. They did things differently then. Between March and May 1943, at Scampton Airfield in Lincolnshire, Gibson assembled 150 British, Canadian, and Australian airmen together with a single American and two New Zealanders. They were of an age with today's gap year teenagers, at most students at uni. I muse upon the privilege of having myself survived into my 70s whereas the lives of most of 617's flyers became forfeit before they knew maturity, fatherhood, in many cases love 
or even sex. They still thought it wonderfully funny to pull off each other's trousers after dinner. Almost all were too young to have caught first releases of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies. Instead of confiding in wives or lovers, many were still writing to Dear Mummy. Several, like Gibson himself, had already crowded into wartime careers, repeated hairbreadth escapes from death. Duty is a word that invites the derision of 21st century comedians, yet it was a real force in many of their lives, and so was God. 617 flight commander and former Oxford oarsman Melvin Young wrote to a friend in 1939, since we had to have a war, I'm more than ever glad I'm in the Air Force. It's a happy, healthy life while it lasts. And I found some old friends and made many new ones. I'm not frightened of dying, if that's God's will, and only hope I may die doing my duty as I should. Many showed the stress that oppressed them. A word portrait of 21-year-old John Hopgood whom Gibson rated the squadron's best pilot, was drawn by his sister Betty at home on what would prove his last leave. He looked pale and very drawn and was smoking heavily, his fingers yellow with nicotine stains. He spoke little of what he was doing and seemed to find comfort in playing Chopin, Mozart, etc. on the piano, which he did beautifully. The flyers of 617 were to be celebrated as a band of brothers. In truth, of course, like all clusters of humanity, they were a mingling of the good, the bad, and the ugly, who never knew each other well. Gibson's own crew hadn't flown together with him in action. He assembled a corps of veterans, but far from being all volunteers, half the flyers were drafted, and several had completed only a handful of operations. This made Gibson's achievement all the more amazing in training them against the clock for chastise. A teenage airman of 1917 vintage wrote, we lived supremely for the moment. Our preoccupation was the next patrol, our horizon the next leave. Sometimes jokingly, as one discusses winning the derby sweep, we would plan our lives after the war. But this had no substantial significance. It was a dream, conjecturable as heaven, resembling no life we knew. We were trained with one object, to kill. We had one hope, to live. A generation later, 617's men were no different, save that few saw themselves as killers. Eileen Strawson, Gibson's driver, was a farmer's daughter. One day their car hit a cockerel, which was trapped flapping in a fender. And when the girl got out and wrung its neck, the airman said squeamishly, I don't know how you could do that. John Hopgood's sister asserted after his death, one of the reasons he went into bomber command was he didn't wish to see the results of human suffering from the weapons of war. During those weeks in which Gibson's crews prepared for chastise, the last thing on their minds was becoming instruments of death for anybody, save, most likely, themselves. <laughs> Barnes Wallace is sometimes portrayed as a gentle genius. In truth, 
he was as ruthless as all obsessives. Even as the squadron trained to attack from a mere 150 feet, he was still testing prototypes of his bombs, codenamed upkeeps, and watching them fail. Three weeks before the attack, the engineer presented Gibson with a brutal proposition. He said he now realized that upkeeps would only work if they were dropped from a height that reduced the shock of their collision with the water. Unless they could be released from just 60 feet, the whole dam-breaking idea was doomed. Here was a ghastly responsibility to impose on the flyers. Heavy bombers were designed to attack Germany from four miles up. Pilots who stunted them at deck level were court-martialed if they were lucky enough to survive. Yet this was what Wallace now asked 617 Squadron to do in darkness over Germany, while a little engine and driving belt beneath each fuselage backspun the four-and-a-half-ton upkeep cylinders at 500 revolutions a minute. Of course, the airman said yes. In the circumstances of 1943, when just one in five of Harris's men was completing a tour of 30 operations. And actuarily, Gibson himself should have been long dead. He refused to admit anything impossible if one had the guts. Some of 617's pilots dropped dummy upkeeps off the Kent coast from 60 feet. They found it a terrifying experience. Two Lancasters were badly damaged by water erupting from the sea. Flying in such a fashion, some men even became airsick. Yet somehow, they did it. The RAF thus had a squadron and a bomb that could theoretically break a masonry dam. Yet now a critical new doubt arose. Wallace claimed that smashing the Mona would create a disaster of the first magnitude. But economic experts warned that while emptying its reservoir would certainly produce a local catastrophe, it would not cut off water supplies from rural industry unless the nearby Sorpi Dam could also be broken. The Sorpi had an earthen wall with a sloping face, impervious to bouncing attack. Wallace said the only possible tactic would be to drop upkeeps like conventional bombs as aircraft flew low along its wall. In his heart, the engineer must have known that the chances of succeeding by such means were no better than, say, one in 10. Chastise went ahead anyway. Why? Because air chiefs recognized that breaching the Mona alone would be a terrific propaganda coup. Its impact increased if they could also break some other dams. The concrete Ada, 45 miles east of the Mona, had nothing to do with the raw water system, but it was also thought to be vulnerable to upkeeps. And thus, this became secondary target for Guy Gibson and his best pilots. The cynical part was that when 133 young men were briefed at Scampton on the evening of their takeoff, they were told that success might shorten the war. In truth, the air marshals knew perfectly well that the most their crews could probably achieve by accepting near suicidal risks was to make an almighty mess. 
24 hours before the raid, news was broken to Gibson that his dog had run onto the road outside the airfield, been killed by a passing car. The squadron CEO was already exhausted, suffering from acute inflammation in his feet. Now, he'd also lost his best beloved companion. Barnes Wallace, who had traveled up to Scampton, never cared sixpence for any animal. But he was terrified this private tragedy would unbalance 617's leader at just the moment it was vital. He should give his all. It says everything about the young man that he never flinched and something about his unpopularity that when he ordered a fitter in the station workshop to make a coffin for the dog, the airman stubbornly refused on the grounds that this had nothing to do with his duties. The 19 aircraft destined for the dams took off between 9.30 p.m. and midnight on the 16th of May, 1943. Gibson personally led nine Lancasters to the Mona, while another five were dispatched to the Sorpe, with the final five intended as reserves to attack whatever targets earlier waves had failed to breach. Just four decades after the Wright brothers initiated heavier-than-air flight, the men of 617 lifted their big, ungainly, but strangely beautiful aircraft from the tranquility of an early summer evening in the Lincolnshire countryside to cross the North Sea below German radar, almost kissing the waves. That outbound trip was an epic in its own right. One pilot flicked the water, tearing the bomb off the bottom of his Lancaster, <coughs> terrifying its crew. Yet somehow they survived to stagger home. As the others flew onwards at tree height towards Germany, two more aircraft collided with power cables, killing everyone aboard. Another pilot was dazzled by a searchlight, which caused him to dive into the ground. Yet another plane was hit by shells that wrecked its communications, forcing the pilot to abort. One more turned back after hours hopelessly lost. What was remarkable was not this savage attrition, but instead that eight Lancasters reached the Mona just after midnight and set about compliance with the grueling terms of engagement set by Barnes Wallace. Gibson wrote of the dam, it looked squat and heavy and unconquerable in the moonlight. 42 minutes elapsed between his arrival and departure, which proved among the most memorable of the Second World War. Three score flyers waged a private struggle in which the only other participants were 40-odd German gunners, together with a few mesmerized, horrified civilian spectators. No enemy fighters intervened. No generals got involved. Instead, there were only angry stabs of light flak, green, yellow, red. Gibson led the way, of course, diving his own G. George towards the lake to initiate the first and last operational uses of Wallace's upkeeps. The airman wrote later, this was a horrible moment. We were being dragged along at four miles a minute, almost against our will. I think of that moment the boys didn't want to go. I know I didn't want to. I thought to myself, 
In another minute, we shall be dead. So what? His front gunner, Hammond Farr, tracer, bouncing off the brickwork of the Mona. Directly beneath the gunner's feet, the bomb aimer lay peering through his sight. Left, a little more left, steady, 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 coming up, then bomb's gone. A German gunner said, suddenly the speeding black shape was thundering like a monster between the two towers and over the wall, spitting fire and almost ramming the gun emplacement with its tail. An English voice called over the radio, good show leader, nice work. The bomb bounced once, twice, three times, then vanished. The approach had lasted 45 seconds. Dave Shannon, an Australian pilot, saw a huge bloody spurt of water that went up hundreds of feet. Yet as minutes passed and the monacy calmed, the dam still stood. Disappointment was crushing for Gibson, the leader, the man always determined to show that he'd asked no one to do what he wouldn't do himself. Barnes Wallace's bomb needed to land with a precision that demanded more than most flesh and blood could contrive, or rather more than most bomb aimers could achieve with a makeshift sight shaking in one hand, enemy tracer streaking towards them. Gibson's bomb seems to have sunk short of the wall. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. John Hopgood's Lancaster attack next. The pilot had recently applauded words in his village vicar's sermon that the greatest gift of God to mankind was the inability to see the future and that to face the future, we need God. Now, Hopgood's M mother was hit by German cannon shells, caught fire, two minutes later, crashed into the ground. Then it was the turn of Mickey Martin, wild man, brilliant flyer, who really did say things like wizard praying. 
Martin once observed to me, with his Australian disdain for English class distinctions that persisted within the RAF, that while Hopgood's kind were good pilots, they wouldn't have had a clue to go out screwing with their gunners on a Saturday night. Martin's plane, too, was hit, its wing damaged, just before releasing upkeep. This bomb, too, exploded wide, though the Lancaster survived. 617 Squadron's three best pilots had failed. There was dismay among those still circling. Back in the operations room in Lincolnshire, where Barnes Wallace waited with Sir Arthur Harris, the engineer buried his head in his hands. He later wrote, you will understand, I think, the tremendous strain which I felt at having been the cause of sending these crews on so perilous a mission. The tense moments when I felt that I had failed to make good were almost more than I could bear. At the Mona, it was the turn of Melvin Young. As he made his approach, both Martin and Gibson overflew the reservoir again, all their gunners firing furiously to distract the defenders. Gibson even flickering his landing lights on and off. Young's A-Apple flew low, low, lower, its navigator calling the now familiar, down, 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 and then the bomb was skipping over the water. It struck the damn wall, vanished, perfectly positioned. Three seconds later, hydrostatic pistols fired the charge, inflicting on the Mona a pulverizing earthquake shock. As a column of water soared skywards, Young cried exultantly over the radio, I think I've done it. Yet still, for a few moments, the wall appeared unbroken. 50 minutes after midnight, David Maltby, who'd celebrated his 23rd birthday a week earlier and had a wife expecting a baby, began his run. He made another precision drop. But even as his upkeep exploded, the dam's crown crumbled. Maltby described how the spout rose with tremendous speed and then gently fell back to reveal a colossal breach opening. There was a thrilled yell, it's gone, it's gone. The desperation that had overtaken the flyers was replaced by exultation and wonder. In every watching cockpit, there were cheers and roars as their occupants succumbed to a schoolboy joy. There's been argument about whose bomb breached the dam. It seems almost certain that Young's was decisive. The squadron commander radioed the success code word. In Barnes Wallace's long life, much had gone before, more was yet to come. Yet this seemed his finest hour, the triumph that secured his place in the British people's narrative of the Second World War. Harris shook the bottom boffin's hand. Wallace, he said, in phrases that became famous, I didn't believe a word you said when you came to see me, but now you could sell me a pink elephant. This did not prove to be the commander-in-chief's considered judgment on chastise, but at that extraordinary moment, he could not forbear to cheer. Gibson, above the Mona, wrote of how down in the foggy valley, we saw cars speeding along the roads in front of the great wave of water which was chasing them, going faster than they could ever hope to. 
I saw the color of headlights changing from light blue to green, from green to dark purple, until there was no longer anything except the water bouncing down in great waves. Then, still leading all the way, Gibson turned east towards the Ada Dam, accompanied by Young and its three crews, um, whose Lancasters still carried bombs, arriving overhead at 1.30 a.m. The Ada had no guns. 617's crews were able to maneuver for the next 24 minutes undisturbed by enemy fire. Yet that did little to diminish the perils. Indeed, natural hazards made this the most terrifying of the night's objectives. Surrounding hills reared hundreds of feet. Just a mile beyond the dam stood a sheer rock face. It was possible to release and upkeep and live only by making an almost instantaneous, violent climbing turn to gain a thousand feet. This would be difficult, dangerous, in a nimble fighter. To do it in a 30-ton bomber was like inviting an elephant to emulate a gazelle. 20-year-old Australian Dave Shannon made the first try. When he leveled out over the water, accusing fingers, the spotlight beams under his fuselage told him he was too high, too high. His engines roared flat out as he flashed over the dam wall and then clawed for height to escape the rock face ahead. The pilot said later, to exit from the Ada Dam with a 9,000 pound bomb revolving at 500 revs was pretty hairy. His second, third, then fourth runs were aborted in the same way. Again and again, Shannon, and after him, Henry Maudsley, attempted approaches, pulled away. It would be disastrous to waste one of just three remaining upkeeps. And at the moment, they'd been shown that precision was indispensable. Only on Shannon's sixth run was he convinced of success. His bomb fell away, bounced twice, struck the dam. As the Lancaster climbed, Gibson wrote, behind me there was that explosion which by now we had got used to, but the wall did not move. Then Henry Maudsley powered in again, slipping down, 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 until at last his bomb aimer stabbed the toggle, too late for the upkeep to make even a single bounce. Instead, it hurtled through the air to detonate on the dam's parapet. The valley was lit by the lightning bolt of its explosion. The Lancaster managed to stagger homewards for another 50 minutes before being shot down by flak, which killed the entire crew. Just three years earlier, the 21-year-old pilot had been an Eton swell, captain of boats, captain of athletics, member of pop. Australian Les Knight carried the very last upkeep. He too aborted his first run and then swung in again. At 1.52, he drove N nuts pell-mell down the lake. Knight's bomb aimers said, it was quite terrifying to see the dam looming up, yet he made a perfect drop. After the explosion, there was a pillar of rising water, a brilliant flash, and then as Knight's wireless operator peered back at the dam, it was as if some huge fist had been jabbed at the wall. A large, almost round black hole appeared and water gushed as if from a hose. A torrent swept down the valley. At 
Gibson radioed the success code word dinghy, prompting a resurgence of euphoria in the Lincolnshire Ops room. Harris, the former extravagant skeptic, seized proud ownership of chastise. He himself telephoned the news to Sir Charles Portal, then in Washington, who in turn informed the Prime Minister. It was often the task of British service chiefs and of Churchill himself to explain to America's warlords why they couldn't do some things, had failed doing others. It was wonderfully cheering for them now to trumpet a triumph, a marriage of British imagination, technical wizardry, and courage. Nonetheless, nine miles from the Mona, there had been an almost inevitable but important failure. Only one of the five Lancasters sent to the Sorpy Dam survived to attack it. American pilot Joe McCarthy showed extraordinary courage and persistence, making 10 aborted runs before at last dropping his upkeep. Three hours later, one aircraft of the reserve wave followed suit. Both bombs landed perfectly, but neither broke the wall, and it's unlikely that any wartime weapon could have done so. Because those crews failed, their fine attempts have received less applause than they deserved. Thereafter, Gibson's men raced for home, and not all of them made it. Melvin Young was shot down at the cruelest moment as his Lancaster crossed the Dutch coast within a few seconds of safety. The surviving dambusters, as an inspired journalist immediately dubbed them, landed at Scampton in the first light of day. Meanwhile, in Germany, disaster unfolded. The power of water in human affairs, both for good and evil, is almost beyond imagining. The breaching of the Mona unleashed 100 million tons, a tidal wave, sometimes 40 feet high, which swept the Sauerland with primeval force, creating floods that eventually extended 100 miles. In the moonlight, a local resident first saw what appeared to him peculiar mushrooms of smoke, but were in reality clouds of spray rising above the forest beneath the dam. There followed a swooshing and rolling like the sound of trains and suddenly tumultuous screams, which prompted the man to an electrifying instant of understanding. Sounds of gunfire and explosions caused Elizabeth Lingenhofer and her children to take refuge in their cellar. Hearing strange noises above, they emerged to behold a raging lake. The children cried hysterically, clung to their mother, the grown-ups prayed and were among the few that night whose appeals succeeded. While hundreds of houses collapsed, their own sturdy old building survived hours of battering by passing debris. The family saw fantastic sights, such as an entire timbered building floating by in which a candle still guttered behind a window. Pleasure boats torn from the Mona Sea, tossing on the billow far below it. 181 inhabitants of the town of Nieheim perished, but by far the heaviest human forfeit was paid by people who were not Hitler's followers, but instead his foreign slaves. A thousand women 
lived in hutted compounds just above the town. We know their names from Nazi personnel records. Anna Petrova, Valentina Filipova, Lisa Meta Klimova, hundreds more similar from Poland, Russia, Ukraine. They labored 12 hours a day in local factories and homes, subsisting on turnip soup with a kilogram of bread a week. They scavenged vegetable peelings from local kitchens. Ferdi Droger was a 16-year-old German apprentice. He wrote afterwards, I had seen these girls every day as they went to work, and now I heard their terrible cries. A hill beyond the camp channeled the rushing water towards the hut. Trapped behind barbed wire, inmates had little hope of escape. Droger glimpsed what he called a wall of water, black as coal, heading towards me at least 40 feet high. Within it, fragments of huts tumbling on top of each other, entangled with screaming people. A few tiny lights spun amid the whirling timbers until they were snuffed out by foam. The boy heard crashing, swooshing, cracking, death screams. Some slaves survived because a few Germans behaved well as a mob of terrified women crowded at the fence of their camp. An elderly limping guard named Robert produced pliers, wrestled with a stubborn barbed wire to open paths of escape, urged away such prisoners as could wade through, saying, quickly, quickly, as the flood reached their chests. Some who kept a footing survived. Those who fell died, including Robert. The tidal wave rolled onwards, overthrowing a train, sweeping away a rail embankment, and the little town of Voswinkel, inhabitants were alerted by the pounding hooves of stampeding horses racing up its main street just ahead of the water. Hannah Maria was a 16-year-old living with her mother, grandmother, and two brothers. Their father was away fighting with the Wehrmacht. They had listened fearfully to distant explosions, then heard the aircraft engines recede. A silence descended on the night. They returned to bed. Yet the children were soon reawakened by their mother, who heard terrifying noises. Hannah Maria peered out of the window and screamed, Water! Water! The family hurried to the attic, from which they watched the flood rise to their feet. The younger boys wept. Their despairing mother exclaimed that they seemed doomed to die together. A slight jerk beneath their feet told them the house was collapsing. The girl wrote later, my mother said, Hanson, you can swim, and Willie can try too. Maybe you can save yourselves. What will Papa do without us? Then the whole attic was swept downstream, its human flotsam still attached. As the roof broke up, Hannah Maria found herself alone. She wrote, around me were doors, furniture, barrels and boxes, floating alongside bellowing and dead cattle. She drifted miles before becoming entangled in the branches of a willow tree. As the water receded, at daybreak, a soldier waded out from the shore and gathered the exhausted and bedraggled teenager in his arms. Next morning, her father arrived on leave from the front. The two forlorn figures eventually identified the corpses of the rest of the family. The girl said of her devastated papa, I was the only thing left to him. At Nieheim, a surviving 
Ukrainian slave laborer, wrote, on the hill above the flood, we stayed until morning, drenched, half naked, freezing. Then a farmer gave each of us a piece of bread and a mug of milk, and we were sent back to work. Local police chiefs compiled a report on the disaster. Below the Mona, thousands of livestock, as well as people, had perished. A hundred mostly small factories were seriously damaged. 46 road and rail bridges were wrecked. Incongruously, this catalogue included destruction of 33 clusters of beehives. Below the Ada, casualties were much less severe because the area was thinly populated. As a disconsolate cluster of survivors surveyed the shambles of the Mona Valley, one man said bitterly that this was what Dapiera had brought upon them. A loyal Nazi listener reported him to the Gestapo, who promptly arrested him. Allied leaders would have said the speaker was right, that the horrors inflicted by the floods were consequences of the total war Germany had unleashed a portion of the price its people must pay for Hitler. The inhabitants of Churchill's cities were tragically accustomed to dragging corpses from wrecked buildings. Chastise was a supreme piece of theater. And in May 1943, theater was precious to the British war effort. On Tuesday the 18th, the story made headlines across the land. The weary British had endured four years of blackouts, rationed food, family separations, spasmodic terrors, only recently assuaged by a few battlefield successes. The dam's raid lifted their spirits, revived faith in their own nation's genius. Gibson and his men became the focus of adulation. A Scampton waff attached the purple ribbon of the Victoria Cross to his tunic. Even as she stitched in his quarters, he laid bare to her the unhappiness that still clung to him amid the celebrations. His words tailed off into piercing memories of his lost dog. In the minds of Britain's warlords, however, the critical question concerned not the human tragedy generated by the dam's raid, but rather its impact upon the war-making of the Third Reich. Albert Speer, Hitler's armament supremo, was woken by the news in the early hours of the 17th of May and was at first shocked and alarmed. Within days, however, he recovered his nerve. Major rural industries proved little effective. Spare performed one of his many brilliant feats of improvisation, orchestrating repairs and restoring production. He wrote, employing just a few planes, the British came close to a success which would have been greater than anything they had achieved hitherto with a commitment of thousands of bombers. He was bemused by the diversion of planes to the unimportant Ada, and even more so by the RAF's failure to interrupt repairs. A few bombs would have produced cave-ins at the exposed building sites. Instead, on the 23rd of September, the Mona was resealed a mere 17 weeks after being breached in time for its reservoir to catch the autumn rains. While Sir Arthur Harris had welcomed the applause Bomber Command received and was delighted himself to masquerade as ringmaster for chastise, 
he remained unconvinced of the merits of precision targeting, writing to the Air Ministry, for years we have been told that the destruction of the Mona Dam alone would be a vital blow to Germany. Both the Mona and Ada were destroyed and I have seen nothing to show that the effort was worthwhile except as a spectacular. This, rather than his parade of enthusiasm in five groups operations room on the night, reflected his considered judgment. For the rest of the war, his command's overwhelming efforts were directed against Germany's cities. I believe that Harris's failure to attack the dam repairs reflected his stubborn, petulant opposition to chastise. That decision, that failure, wasted much of 617 Squadron's sacrifice. If the Mona Reservoir had stayed empty through the winter of 1943, a temporary inconvenience could have become a serious difficulty for Ruhr industry. Yet it seems to me mistaken to dismiss Chastise's contribution to the Allied war effort as to some iconoclasts. Industrial disruption exceeded that achieved by any previous air attack. Resources were poured into providing defenses for every dam in Germany, and thousands of skilled workers, Dutch, French, Italian, had to be committed to the Mona repairs. The propaganda shock to the German people was important, and so was the boost to British prestige in the United States, where it had fallen low. In the muddled mathematics of total war, chastise achieved much less than the visionaries had hoped, but in my view, just enough to justify its tragic cost to both sides. As for the dam busters, less than a quarter survived to the end. In May 1945, of 77 who returned safely to Scampton on that triumphant morning two years earlier, just 32 remained, the most famous not among them. Because Gibson became a celebrity, we should treat cautiously the testimony of people who first met him after chastise. Yet it's striking that Clementine Churchill, a perceptive woman, was enchanted. He's a perfect poppet, so young and modest. He's 25, but looks 18. I thought, what a nice husband he would make for Mary. But alas, he's been married for three years. Gibson was featured as castaway on an early Desert Island Discs, telling Roy Plumley, I'm not a highbrow. In fact, I can't claim to know an awful lot about music. Somehow, I never seem to have had time to do anything about it, except to listen occasionally to something I like the sound of. Plumley signed off his guests by saying, good luck, happy landings. Gibson responded, good night, everyone. There were no happy landings. He was killed in a crash in Holland. The bomber offensive has become one of the most controversial aspects of the Second World War. In old age, 617 Squadron's Dave Shannon denounced sanctimonious, hypocritical, and groveling criticism about things that were done in a total war. It certainly seems mistaken to apply to those days the moral criteria of our own immensely privileged because peaceful times. Yet the outcome demonstrated the wisdom of a warning delivered in 1941 by the great scientist civil servant, Sir Henry Tizard. Tizard wrote that he didn't doubt that a sustained bombing campaign would make a catastrophic impact on Germany. 
He questioned, however, whether this would prove decisive, as the apostles of air power promised when they unleashed so-called area bombing. Tizard was proved right. The strategic air offensive, like its awesome manifestation at the Mona, failed to inflict the industrial disaster of the first magnitude that air chiefs and Barnes Wallace had sought. In Neheim, a surviving slave laborer named Elena Volkova for months conducted a secret affair with a German guard who on the fatal night helped some women to flee. His relationship with Elena cost him a prison term, but on the 16th of June, 1945, the couple were married in Neheim's Church of St. John the Baptist, where two years earlier, hundreds of dead from the flood had been laid out. The bride wore her German sister-in-law's wedding dress. A choir of liberated Russian prisoners sang in the organ loft. Thank you all very much. <laughs> That was Max Hastings. His book, Chastise the Dambusters, is available now in paperback, published by William Collins. We're not currently holding live events, but we are running a series of fortnightly virtual lectures on various different historical topics. You can find out more about them on our website at historyextra.com forward slash events. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for an Everything You Wanted to Know episode on the Russian Revolution with Robert Service.